Welcome to The Lisa Show. Are you fluent in more than one language? Foreign language skills are not only useful while you're traveling around the world, but they can also lead to developing other skills. And a lot of studies have focused on what those skills are and the importance of developing other languages. And they include problem solving, dealing with abstract concepts, even listening skills. So let's say that you are convinced of these great powers that you can have from learning a second language. Well, where do you even start if you want to learn this other language? Well, we've invited master linguist and founder of Perfect English Grammar, Shona Beckwith, to discuss language learning programs and the most effective ways to learn a foreign language. Welcome, Dr. Beckwith. Thank you. Now, your program, Perfect English Grammar, is a tool that you've used to help people who are learning English to protect, to perfect, uh, um, rather, their grammar skills. And you also speak um, a few languages yourself. So from your experience, where's the best place to start for people who want to learn a foreign language? Goodness me, there's absolutely loads of ways to start. Um, I myself like to start with a really good beginner's course, uh, a book. Um, usually, um, or there's obviously lots of apps that can help you. There's now an absolute wealth of stuff on YouTube as well. Some of it, some of which starts from the very beginning and which is really excellent quality. So there's a lot of different resources that we have. Sometimes it can feel a little overwhelming by, by the choices. And we were like, yeah, but, but, but what's the most effective way? Um, can you talk a little bit about your research and your experience and what you found? Absolutely. Um, the thing is, I think it's a little bit like exercise in the sense that it's very difficult to say there's one particular way that will work brilliantly for everything hmm. uh, and for everyone. It's not like swimming is necessarily better than running. It's the one that suits you that you will keep up, which is the, uh, the most effective long term because language learning is very much a marathon rather than a sprint. And you need to be able to be in it for the long haul if you really want to achieve fluency. Mm. Um, certainly a balanced curriculum or a balanced way of learning is really good. So you need to speak and you need to read. Um, it's good to do some vocabulary and it's good to do some listening. Um, one thing is probably not going to take you all the way. Um, so if, for example, you were to start with an app, that's an excellent place to start, but it won't be enough long term. So I think of those those things where you see on TV when people are trying to learn a foreign language and they put the post-it notes all around the house mm -hmm. labeling, you know, uh, what what the fridge is in whatever language they're trying to learn and the table and all that stuff. It, it, that's a tactic to be able to learn that. Is there is there um, ways that we should not be trying to learn these languages? You mentioned that, you know, they're like exercise. There's bunches of things that that could help people arrive at that. But are there negative ways or ways that we shouldn't be trying to learn a language? There's certainly ways which take far longer than other ways, and because of that, they can be discouraging. Um, you'll find. Uh, most progress is you do something every day and you do something active. So the actual problem with the, the way that you mentioned of the post-it notes is that it works for a short time, but after a few days, you forget the post-it notes hmm. are there. You just kind of block them out and it doesn't actually do you a huge amount of good um, in the long term. It would be better uh, if you wanted to learn those words, to actually perhaps make flashcards or to ask somebody to test you, because bringing things from our brains out is always better than passively receiving them if you want to really retain the information. Um, mm -hmm. So for vocabulary learning in particular, uh, testing yourself and having to use the words is always going to be more effective. Now, which languages do you speak? Um, my best language after English is French. Um, I've also I'm currently learning German, which I'm very much enjoying. Um, I've also studied Spanish and Japanese. Oh wow! Um, which one was the easiest to learn? It's very hard to say because I kind of learned them in different contexts. Uh huh. Uh, so French, I started at school. Um, in a I really didn't make a huge amount of progress at school. Uh, but then I went to live in France, and I lived in France for a total of six months. During that time, I hardly spoke English. 
Um, and that was an exceedingly effective way of learning, um, if a little stressful. <laughs> Whereas with German, I'm taking it easy. Um, I'm really enjoying myself. Uh, but I'm certainly making, it, it'll take me a couple of years to get where I want to be with that. Now, I've always heard that learning a second language is the hardest because you're just trying to establish new habits and, and pathways and that, that the subsequent languages come a little easier. Have you found that to be true or not? I think that is definitely true um, because so much of learning a language is just getting your head around what it takes in the sense that you know, in a similar way, if you if you get a good level in one musical instrument, the next one will certainly be much easier. There's a lot of shared meta-language. There's a lot of shared knowledge, um, especially I, in the UK, for example, there was a time when we didn't learn a lot about English grammar in schools. And that's such um, a disadvantage when you're learning a second language. But once you've learned all that stuff for your second language, huh. then you can obviously easily apply it to your third or fourth or fifth. You, you mentioned that it was, um, that German is fun for you. What is it that, yes. that is, is fun for you about it? There's a couple of things. One is it's just deeply satisfying to be able to have a conversation in another language, to connect with somebody you might not have been able to connect with, um, and to understand things that you wouldn't otherwise understand. Like it's absolutely a window into another world. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, because of my website, I'm a, I'm a person who likes grammar, and the German grammar is um, very interesting. I certainly find it interesting. So, you know, there's a lot of people listening that may have not even considered learning a second language, maybe have thought, oh, I'm not in school anymore, that ship has sort of sailed. Can you talk a little bit about how learning uh, multiple languages and knowing them has has benefited you personally? Absolutely. I mean, certainly... Obviously for traveling, obviously for me, for my, for my work, it's very useful to be able to help students who perhaps have the first language of German or Spanish or French uh, to understand the difficulties they might be likely to have in English. Language learning has also been wonderful for me in just making friends. So I have so many friends who I wouldn't have met if I hadn't been able to speak their languages or we hadn't had language learning as a shared passion also the case that language learning is exceedingly good for you. Um, it's very good for your brain. It decreases your likelihood of, or the age which you might get Alzheimer's by some enormous amount. I believe it can push back Alzheimer's by 10 years oh, wow. um, or something like that. It's, it's very, very good cognitive exercise. So if you wanted to do something stimulating for your brain just for that reason, um, learning a language would be an excellent choice. Um, probably, I would suggest, uh, better than, for example, doing Sudokus or something like this. Um, no offense to Sudoku. But um, it's really enriched my life. Uh, for example, I'm able to read a novel in French that has not yet been translated into English. Um, and I, I just find that wonderful to be able to know what's on the French bestseller list, um, Hopefully I'll, I'll, in the not-too-distant future, also be able to do that with German. Um, to be able to read, for example, a French newspaper and to find out what they're saying about the UK in the current climate <laughs> is a very interesting thing to do. You know, so many people here in the United States will have, in their high school or middle school experience, uh, had a couple of years of language, I believe. I, I think it's a national requirement that you have at least some sort of experience with that. Um, and and for a lot of those people, because it's an in-school experience, it's not a positive experience. And so the idea of revisiting uh, the learning of a second language kind of becomes a stumbling block. Talk people through that stumbling block and 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 the and the value of of pursuing this. Yeah, I mean, I also didn't have an exceptionally good experience with languages in my school. Um, I went to school in Scotland. My French teacher was Scottish. Um, the system is in terribly well set up here. Um, however, I think if you can get past that, uh, and you know, our, our past very much doesn't need to determine our future, um, and you know, not allow that bad experience to to influence you. Mm. When you get to learn it by yourself, you can see that or for me, I can certainly see that there's 
firstly, there's this whole world which I wasn't aware of when I was at school. Um, you know, you, you feel like you're studying for a test instead of being able to make friends or go to restaurants or understand films. There's so much more out there that you can use it for. But also, I now study exactly how I feel like studying. So <laughs> I don't need to do anything. You know, if I, if I get a book and the book is boring, I don't miss the book. I watch something on YouTube or I download a French film or, you know, I read a novel. It's absolutely unnecessary to do boring drills if you don't want to. Um, there's a, an absolute, you know, world of interesting content out there. And that is one of, really is one of the best ways. If you can get to the level where you can understand real things in that language, that's so motivating and interesting, completely unlike school. Um, you know, to be able to watch, I have a friend who's learning German by watching Germany's Next Top Model. Um, <laughs> you know, that's amazing. There's no reason to do anything boring or to do any kind of homework style things if you don't want to. Well, your attitude is refreshing as far as taking it as a whole uh, approach, you know, and, and, and finding things that you're interested in and capitalizing on them. Because I feel like the, the, the tendency that we have is we think, well, the best way to learn the language is to immerse yourself in it. It's to go to the actual country and live and talk and work. I mean, that's the fastest way. And knowing that most of us can't do that, um, you're talking about different specifics that we can do to acquire this skill. Um, what advice do you have for those who want to immerse themselves in the culture, are not able to, but still want to practice speaking with a, a, a native um, speaker? Yes. Well, there's a couple of things to say about that. One is that sometimes going to the country works and sometimes it doesn't. Hmm. And I had a good experience with learning French in France because I went to work for a French family. I worked as an au pair girl. And I lived with the family, and I didn't have any French. So it was very much thrown in the deep end. I had to learn to speak. It was really quite stressful. Um, but obviously, in the end, I got there. Um, if you go there on exchange, or if you just move there, and uh, maybe you have a, an English-speaking job, um, you may or may not actually learn to speak the language well. There are many people who've lived in other countries for years and years and actually don't speak that language very well. So it's very much not hmm. like a, a, some magic pill. Um, if you, you can actually immerse yourself in your own home, you know, in your own hometown, um, often better in the sense that you can easily watch and listen to another language via the internet. If you want to speak to somebody, it's extremely easy to speak to somebody online. Um, so I speak several times a week in German to my German-speaking partner. She lives in Germany. I live in London. Um, we use a website called italki, but there's many such websites out there where you can find either a speaking partner, a teacher, or... Um, like an exchange partner where you speak English some of the time or, uh, and the other language some of the time. Um, it's absolutely not a barrier. You know, uh, people will be listening to this and they'll think, oh, man, it's, it's time. You know, Shona, yeah. she talked to it. It's time. I'm going <laughs> I'm I'm to do this. But, but likely <laughs> yeah. that road will be a l have a little bit uh, of frustration, some bumps and bruises on, the, uh, on the learning the second language. Give a little bit of encouragement for those who might get easily discouraged. Yes. So I think one of the things that we in the English-speaking world tend to think is that people have a language gene, either you can do it or you can't. Um, and we, I suspect we also kind of think that it's not as long as it is. So it does take a long time. There will be times when it's annoying when you... Um, when you ha try to have a conversation and the words don't come um, and all this, but it's all, if you can just, if you are able to, to just understand that this is all part of the process, if you were trying to lose weight or get fit, you would expect that it wouldn't be completely smooth sailing all the way. You'd understand there's going to be some ups and downs. It's all like a break. Um, you know, you can sit for a week or two, come back to it. Uh, try to find, a, I often like, if I, 
if I'm feeling a little discouraged or so motivated, I, I like to try and find a different thing to do. So maybe instead of studying with my book, I'll only speak for a week. Or instead of speaking, I'll try and um, read a novel or a magazine. Um, just to change things up a bit and make it more interesting. But it really is worthwhile in the long term. Learning languages have brought so much richness to my life. I really uh, do recommend it. See, so it's Dr. Recommended, Dr. Shona Beckwith. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, being with us. She is an English teacher and author and the founder of Perfect English Grammar. You can find that online at perfect-english-grammar.com. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Lisa Show. There is something nearly every American has in common, and unfortunately, that thing is debt. We live in a spending culture, and the average American, I I couldn't even believe this, has about $38,000 from debt. That's not including their mortgage. So how do we get the motivation to even start digging ourselves out of this hole? It was a question I wasn't able to answer myself, so we invited Jen Smith, the founder of Modern Frugality. She understands what it's like to be in debt and also is here to help us to learn how we can stay motivated and begin paying off that debt. Welcome, Jen. Hi, so great to be here. So we talk about debt. Why is it that, uh, especially America, we have this culture of debt? It's so easy to accumulate debt. We've got uh, student loans being handed out to 18-year-olds. It's super easy to get car loans. So, And then credit cards are, are easy to get. So it's, it's very easy in our culture to rack up a lot of debt before you even realize where you're at. And it's bad people, good people, everybody can have debt. It's not an indicator of who you are. Uh, it's just something that's become so ingrained in our culture. I can almost hear the eye rolls from some people where they're just like, oh, sure, but what does Jen know? Talk about your own experience with debt. Well, uh, when my husband and I got engaged uh, four years ago, we had a total between us of $78,000 of debt. That was between a car and two student loans. And we made it a, a priority for our new marriage is that the first thing we wanted to do was pay off our debt. I wasn't initially on board, uh, but he convinced me pretty quickly uh, that this was something that would be really, really beneficial to our future. What was your hesitation? I didn't want to live my 20s living under a rock, so to speak. I really wanted to live life fully in in the years that I thought would be the best years of my life. And, And I'm, you know, I was 25 at the time, and that was my mindset. So I had no idea what my 30s would bring. <laughs> and so I, I really quickly realized that if I wanted to have the best years of my life in my 30s and 40s and 50s, that I had to sacrifice in my 20s to get there. And so what we thought would take us five years uh, to pay off $78,000, we were able to do in 23 months. Wow. And that was on uh, less than the average American income and um, between two job losses, and I was only employed part-time the entire time. So we didn't have any special advantages when it came to paying off debt. We just worked really hard and made it a priority. So once you made that choice, what was then the hardest part about paying that debt off? So you'd think that the hardest part would be making the extra money or pinching pennies. But really, the hardest part for me was living the day-to-day. It was making choices to do a side hustle or making the choice to save money. It was was all in staying motivated. And Hmm. it took almost two years. And so you can imagine at first, you're really gung-ho about paying off debt. And then for most people, kind of after a month, peters off. So I had to make this choice every day um, for two years to continue to do it. And and some days I did and some days I didn't, but that was definitely the hardest part. I I know people that are listening, they're looking at their own pile and and maybe it's 78,000, maybe it's 50,000, you know, maybe it's much more, maybe it's much less. It seems daunting. They want to go after it and they've experienced that going for it 
and then losing the motivation. Do you have um, tricks uh, to help us stay motivated in those times that we really don't want to pay off our debt? Yes. So there are two types of motivation, and they're both really important. So you've got extrinsic and intrinsic motivations. And so they are exactly how they sound. Extrinsic is external motivators. So if you stick to your budget in the month of September, on the 1st of October, you get to go to your favorite restaurant. Mm. um, Yeah, so things that are external. And then intrinsic is uh, things that are internal, things that you do because you enjoy them or because they make you proud or excited. Um, And so that was a little harder when you're paying off debt. Yeah. (laughs) Because giving up your latte addiction does not make you feel good. Yep. Um, But then comes to the part that you just have to design your debt-free journey to be uh, working for you. So choosing methods for budgeting and spending and making money that you enjoy. So you don't have to do every side hustle in the book. You can choose one that you like, and you may not be working 24 hours a day, Mm -hmm. but that's okay. You are doing something that doesn't drain as much of your energy. And so if you're going to do something that you enjoy, that's a little internal motivator that will help you. You know, we've used the term side hustle, and I feel like most people know what that is. But what is a side hustle if someone's like, I'm not sure I I get that exactly? Yeah, so... There are the typical ones like driving for Uber or Lyft, delivering food with Postmates, um, walking dogs, babysitting, any, anything that you can really think to do to earn money. There's probably a website on the Internet that will let you offer your services through it. Um, and then there's also using the skill set you already have to offer services like just through word of mouth. So. If you are a graphic designer, maybe offering some logo production on the side, Um, or if it doesn't like, if it doesn't conflict with your day job, um, you can offer consulting services that are associated with your primary job. Hmm. Um, So, so just doing something that will not take so much of your energy that you're not able to uh, get your priorities done. Um, but it can make you some extra money and uh, aid in that in speeding up your debt payoff. We're talking with Jen Smith um, from Modern Frugality uh, about uh, side hustles, about staying motivated while paying off debt. And a, a question that I have for you is: You paid off seventy-eight thousand dollars of debt. That's not a question I recognize. Um, <laughs> But you uh, you are now teaching people to do that. Why wouldn't you just be satisfied with paying off your own debt and then leading your own life? Yeah. So me doing this actually started as a way to stay motivated uh, through paying off my debt. So I found that a year into our debt payoff, I had accomplished so much and I felt really good about that. But then I looked at it and I said, and I saw that I had a year left to Mm. go and it was not as I didn't feel as accomplished as I should because we always focus more on the negative than the positive Uh, so I just saw the road ahead versus what I had done and so I started a blog in order to kind of just chronicle my journey and share the things I had learned with my friends who wanted to pay off their debt but hadn't started and so they were just small ways to make money, small ways to save money, and people were really encouraged by it. And so that's how I got, it start, I got started uh, writing and helping others as a way for me to stay motivated. And now it's something that I tell others to do when they're feeling down. Uh, helping others is a great way, whether it's in paying off debt or just something unrelated. Helping others can really help you see all the things that you've accomplished versus what you have left to accomplish. When we talk about staying motivated, I'm one, and I don't know if it's the child inside of me, um, but like the visual things that I can see, like the stickers to count down to a thing, or like I remember in elementary school, counting down to Christmas, we made the Christmas links, and I was able to cut down one of those links as we got another day, or the advent calendar. Are there things like that that we can do 
silly as they may seem, that would help us stay motivated toward paying off our debt? Definitely. So I love uh, doing games or challenges. So I love no-spend challenges. I wrote a book called The No-Spend Challenge Guide, and it's basically taking a week or a month and just committing to not spend any money either on personal items or a particular item that you have trouble impulse spending with and see how much you can save um, and put towards your debt for that week or month. So just challenging yourself. Maybe it's not in a no-spend challenge. Maybe it's a side hustle challenge. You want to make a certain amount for a week or month so that you can put that extra um, towards your debt. And I also like reading books and uh, taking courses, uh, free ones, listening to podcasts. I feel like those are are also really motivational. So sometimes we can get um, paralyzed by trying to accumulate too much knowledge. But if you if you get past that and you just keep acting, even though you know that you're not going to know everything uh, about personal finance and debt payoff, but just keep going. And then kind of reminding yourself and learning along the way can be like making those mental achievements can be really motivating. Earlier you spoke about, I can't remember if you called it a financial map or a a journey um, that we can kind of see where we want to be. What did you call it? A debt-free journey. A debt-free journey. So we envision this debt-free journey. How do we then not find ourselves back in this situation, right? Like we make it through, we slog our way through $78,000 worth of debt. We come up on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then, as you mentioned, it's very easy uh, in this country, especially for us to get money that we don't have, spend it, and then find ourselves back in that situation. Yes. I actually just finished writing about that. I have a a new book out in November called Pay Off Your Debt for Good. And the biggest thing that people ask when they're nearing the end of their journey or have finished paying off their debt is, is how do I take this momentum that I've built up, I've worked so hard for, and not just fall off the wagon, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, And I think there are two things you can do throughout your debt payoff is be working towards a a new financial goal. So working towards making some long-term income. Um, I think the best way to save money is to spend time making it. And Hmm. if you can capitalize on some sort of like entrepreneurial uh, spark that you have while you're doing all this side hustling and maybe start something small, maybe like my blog wasn't making any money while we were paying off debt Mm -hmm. and now it does. Um, but yours doesn't have to be a blog, but it can be something that you can start now that isn't profitable, but in the long run will be. And so then once you're done paying off debt, you'll have more income to be able to invest um, in this little entrepreneurial venture. Um, And then the second thing is to have goals beyond paying off debt. So a lot of people transition their momentum from paying off debt to maxing out their tax advantage retirement funds. Hmm. So the 401k, the 403b, the IRA. So they just take what they were putting towards their debt and they'll put the same or maybe a little less towards their investments. Um, And that's a great way, especially if you are like nearing the end of your 20s, early 30s, even into 40s, and you haven't invested a lot, Doing a lot of investing up front while you still have that momentum will benefit you far down the road. And you don't have to commit to having that momentum for the rest of your life. Um, But if you can capitalize on it now, you can make compound interest really work for you. I, it certainly has been the joke uh, of a lot of people um, as we talk about these kind of things. The the butt of the joke is like a vision board, right? Like put in front of you the the life that you want. If there's a car that you want, a, a home that you want, and actually have the physical the the physical depiction of what that looks like, is there actually power in that? I would say sometimes yes, but for me, not really. Visualization just makes me wish that I was on the beach, a vacation picture, or I had the new car that's in the picture. Like, it just makes me kind of annoyed um, <laughs> that, I can't, that I can't have those things right now. And, and that's just me. Other people may be much more motivated by visualization. 
Um, but yeah, that's not for me. That's not a thing for you. And I think that's fair because I think you know, we hear people talk about that and it seems that it should apply for everyone. Not everything will apply for everyone, but the importance of mm-hmm. finding the thing that works for you. Uh, good old-fashioned discouragement is going to come around. Give a, a piece of advice to someone who's feeling discouraged in their debt-free journey. Yeah. So first is just tackle the worst stuff first. So during your day, during your week, try tackling those things that you are just dreading doing those first. And that concept comes from Brian Tracy's book, Eat That Frog. Um, so he says, tackle your least favorite task in the morning. And that way you don't um, procrastinate and you get it out of the way and you just feel that burden kind of lifted off you and it, it makes you feel better. And then also start small. So you don't have to be perfect from day one. You don't have to have that pressure on you uh, to do everything at once. Start small. And, and so maybe you're in Target and you've passed through the notorious dollar section right up at the front, <laughs> and you have several items in your cart that you did not go in there for, um, maybe you put some of them back instead of all of them. Like, maybe you don't have to limit yourself and and be, you know, that good right up front. If you do put them all back, like, more power to you. Um, but know that you don't have to be uh, the best version of yourself when you're starting out. You will You will get there but you can start small in the meantime. Almost like baby steps. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Jen Smith, she runs the personal finance blog Modern Frugality, the author of two books, one, The No Spend Challenge Guide, and the other one, Meal Planning on a Budget. She also co-hosts the podcast Frugal Friends. Thank you for uh, being here and telling us how to stay motivated while paying off debt. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We have but a minute here, Lisa, and I need your help. The uh, it, it seems as though the Advent calendar, mm-hmm. uh, if people don't know, that's the countdown till Christmas, right? It's every day of December. Uh, what was traditionally just really terrible chocolate, yeah. Uh, you know, you sort of bit into it and went, "Boy, that's terrible! I can't wait till I do that again tomorrow." It has it has expanded oh, into yeah, it's crazy now. like there are like cheeses Advent mm-hmm. uh, calendars, right, where you can get beauty pieces supplies. Of cheese. Yeah. Uh, I, I've seen Harry Potter figurine advent Oh, there's calendar. a whole Lego section, yeah. So so w- what I wanted to ask you is less about, like, what advent calendars mm-hmm. might you be interested in or, or have you seen this trend or anything like that? Here, here is where I need both um, your friend help. Oh. Uh, it's also where I need your parenting help. Uh, and, and probably... M- more than anything, it's where I really just need like your mom help. Got okay? it. I'm Are in. you ready? Mm-hmm. I have a problem. Oh no. Self control is probably <laughs> like the umbrella that it could be uh-huh. uh, fitted You're... under. But let me stop you right there. Let me just stop you right there. Okay. You're not the only one. I have a couple kids like you. Right, right. Oh, <laughs> Where no. you set out the advent calendar, you're like, Wait, who opened up December 24th? Right. Because they can't help themselves. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's I mean, a problem. So labeling it as I can't help myself. <laughs> like I recognize I can help myself in, in a logical theory of is it possible for me not to open up and I'm not kidding you every single door of <gasps> the advent calendar one. the oh, second that dear. I buy it oh, thus ruining what <laughs> the, the advent calendar is set for. But but I uh, I I just have that that issue. Now I think that it stems from when I was a, a, a very, very young kid, my mom used to set out Christmas gifts, put them underneath a tree. And man, if I didn't learn the way that she would wrap things mm-hmm. and how she would place the tape, I'm in there. We had She was a crafter. I had the X-Acto knife to oh, cut the tape no. line and then replace yeah. the tape line. And it was, here was the deal. I didn't want to play with the toy or the gaming system or whatever the thing was. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know yep. what it was. Yep. Fast forward a few years to when I started collecting cards, you know, like baseball, basketball, those kind of things. Uh, I, I would go and purchase those, sometimes boxes of mm-hmm. cards at a time, and sit down and tear through those because I couldn't wait to know what all the cards were in that deck. <laughs> now, as an adult, I, there uh, there are a couple uh. of really cool calendars <laughs> yes. that I'm like, yes, I'm on board, but I just feel like 
what I should do is say, <laughs> so, someone, al- like, hand Help this me. to me for a minute, <laughs> allow me to open the door, get the thing, and then take it away from me. Oh, but funny. they would have to take it to somewhere where I couldn't get to. So, like, it doesn't work with my wife. No. Because I would be like, I she know it's in this house. That. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not that. I know it's in this house. I know it's somewhere. Where is it? And what oh. is the thing that's opened on December 24th? That's so, funny. So, is there anything simple that I can do and or will you be my advent no. calendar accountability? Because what I want you to do, we'll go out to your car. No. I get access to the calendar oh, for a moment. Funny. I get the treat for the day or whatever the thing is. And then you take it and then you are away from me and I can't get back in your no. car. No. Oh, my goodness. I don't have the time nor the desire to do that for you. But I will say you, there's a couple of things that you should do. You could do something where you give an advent calendar, you know, a Ooh. thing every day to someone else. Ooh. My solution was I was going to buy an advent calendar for every day, <laughs> counting oh. down <laughs> to Christmas. Hey, that's a good idea, too. You could have one for, you know, cheese of the, you know, yeah. advent calendar, one for chocolate, one for beauty products, yep. one for Legos, yep. all one the for things. dog treats. All the things. Yeah, all the things. One a day. One a day. Hey, you're listening to The Lisa Show. You may have seen the teen comedy Mean Girls or laughed at the memes that quote lines from that movie that are all over the internet. The snobby high school popular girl character is seen in almost all media our daughters consume. But do you ever think about how your daughters are affected by the real mean girl attitude? Psychotherapist and author Katie Hurley joins us today to share how we can raise strong, confident, and compassionate girls in today's cutthroat world of comparison. Welcome, Katie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hey, so will you break down what mean girl behavior is? Because sometimes I think that we define it a little bit differently than bullying. It's a little bit more subtle, isn't it? It is. It falls under the category of what we call relational aggression. So, you know, kind of those days of the schoolyard bully, that's sort of a bygone era for the most part right now. Occasionally we see some sort of a fight go viral on Facebook quickly because those things get shared very quickly. But for the most part, what we're seeing, especially among young girls, is this sort of subtle, under-the-radar stuff where they're excluding other girls, they're taunting other girls, they're spreading rumors and gossip. Sometimes they're using technology. Sometimes they're still using good old-fashioned note writing, um, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not letting them play on the playground and that kind of stuff. Where do you think this kind of behavior comes from? Well, I think there's a variety of factors right now. Kids are growing up in this bizarro sort of supercharged super kid world right now where they go from kindergarten where everybody's friends to first grade where everybody has to be on some sort of club sport and they have Mm -hmm. to be the best at something. So it's really very competitive for young children. And I, it's, as somebody who grew up in a time where girls couldn't be anything (laughs) to kind of, you know, be on the other end of it where girls can run for president you know, it's it's hard for me to watch in some ways because we've created yeah. this system for our young girls where, hey, you can be anything you want to be, but you better be the best at it. And it's got to start now. So yeah. It's this pressure cooker. And instead of learning to lift each other up, they're learning to step all over each other to get to that perceived top. And, and, and what, what do you think the media has it in them that 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 wants to encourage this kind of behavior? You know, how does that serve them? Well, I, I just think these messages are kind of everywhere. And, you know, it is funny to laugh at those memes and things kind of spread quickly because we've all been there. Mm-hmm. You know, people say to me all the time, this is a rite of passage. You know, girls just have to deal with this. This is a rite of passage. And I always think to myself when I hear that, why on earth would we allow that to continue to be a rite of passage, right. even if we felt that that's what it is? Let's change the narrative. You know, yeah. it's not that hard to shift the narrative for girls. But then you do see it all over the media. You see it all over programming for girls. I mean, I, you know, without naming the, the big giant companies making all the tween shows, they rely on this stuff. Um, they make jokes out of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's funny. You, you, you watch tween programs that are geared toward tween girls, like 10 to 12-year-old girls. It's either mean girl stuff or the girls are pushing down the boys, which is an equally yeah, bad Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, y- you talk about how your experience with uh, the Mean Girls um, 
growing up that you definitely experienced it. Lisa, you've expressed yours as well. Yeah, for sure. Do, do we see with the advent of social media and uh, electronics and those things being introduced to kids at a younger age, are we seeing uh, that reflected in the mean girl kind of s- syndrome or whatever happening earlier for for girls? A hundred percent. You know, right now, a, a big problem is TikTok. And parents, the party line for most parents is that it's just this silly, fun app where you make videos. But if you actually follow kids on TikTok and you're actually in there watching it happen, the comments that they're making about each other, uh, the things that they say to each other, even the tone of a lot of the videos being made, it's, it's not healthy. And right. so we have very young girls with unfettered access to stuff that is not intended for them developmentally, and they're running a little wild. Now, kids, their brains are not fully developed. They're not supposed to make good decisions all the time. Right. You know, right. Growing up is trial and error. It's just for you and I, growing up was climbing too high in a tree and falling and breaking a collarbone. Now these kids are sort of engaging in this road rage on social media at very young ages, and you can't take it back. And we're seeing it over and over again. No matter what you do, you cannot take it back when you put stuff out there. So, you know, it's really incumbent upon the parents to educate themselves, to understand that TikTok is not innocent, you know, just because it has a funny name. It's not an instant app. It's a predator's paradise, and it is not appropriate for young children. And, you know, we have to start looking at those things with a critical eye instead of just saying, well, everybody's doing it, so it must be safe. Something that I've struggled with as a parent is that I will recognize mean girl behavior quite blatantly. And and sometimes, and this breaks my heart, I can see that my my daughters are either um, surprised by it or they don't even recognize it. So, like that they're doing yeah, it? Yeah. Like, really? like I like I will interact whether it's um, like with a cousin or a friend or a neighbor or something. I'll see that sort of mean girl attitude. And my, you know, if, if my daughter's too young, she doesn't recognize what's going on, mm. but she can feel something's off. How... How do we, what is that fine line between pointing it out and saying, oh, that's not right, that's mean, and then letting them discover that on their own? At what age do we have these conversations with them about what's really happening? Well, I'm a believer that we all sort of need to enter a social contract to put empathy first in our lives. And we've kind of gotten away from that. And research actually documents that very well. A study from University of Michigan showed that kids going off to college today are 40% less empathic than their counterparts of 30 years ago. Ouch. So, you know, without aging myself too much, but, you know, going off to college 30 years ago, people cared more about other people. Right. And now it's kind of we before me. And that starts young. So, you know, I think there are ways to have these conversations and point these things out without making it um, always be about consequences. Because one thing hmm. that's happened is the word bullying has gotten super watered down in society. So everybody's a bully. You look at someone the wrong way, you're a bully. You say one bad thing, you're right. a bully. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that bullying is a pattern of behavior. It's not one time. It's not two times. It's not even three times in some cases. It's a well-established pattern of behavior with a specific target. Somebody's in the power position. Somebody's not. Um, and they're really trying to harm that person emotionally or physically over and over and over again. So it's useful to remember that because kids are going to make social errors. Girls are going to do it and boys are going to do it. Boys right. tend to do it in a more physical, funny way. Girls sometimes do it in this way by using their words. We know that girls outpace boys academically, um, you know, right on through high school. So, you know, intellectually, they're kind of finding their words faster than boys are maybe. So. Hmm. Some of that is why you see this behavior among girls that seems manipulative. It's okay to say, hey, you know, later, you know, not right maybe in the moment, but later sit down with your child and say, you know, I noticed something today that felt kind of yucky to me. I just want to talk about it so we can think about why might that person have said that, you know, what do you think she was like feeling that she would have said that thing that wasn't very nice? I'm not even sure you noticed. Did you notice it wasn't that nice of a thing to say? And kind of just break it down, but think empathically, like always think zoom out and think, why is this other person acting this way right now? Mm -hmm. You know, if we all do that more, you know, even when we're like mad about traffic or mad about the way another adult is acting, if we all made a conscious effort to zoom out and think, huh, I wonder if that person is going through a hard time, we could solve problems more effectively. 
We're talking with Katie Hurley about uh, a perfect world of no more mean girls. We've spoken a lot about empathy. Uh, how can we really teach kids empathy, especially where there's a certain part of our society or those generations before our current generation who don't really get it themselves either? That's true. You know, we're, we're, we are living in this sort of middle ground where it's on us and it feels like a lot of pressure. And I think that's part of what stops us from, from really prioritizing empathy is that it feels like why is everything on us all the time to fix everything? Right. You know, when we think globally about right. what's happening in our country, what's happening around the world, we look at all these bad news stories and we feel hopeless. We feel like we can't fix this, you know, so we kind of walk away from it. And I am really a believer that we can always take small steps toward making things better, even if it's just starting in our own little community, even just on our street, you know, um, take those small steps. And so part of that is really making empathy part of the blueprint of your family. So, you know, for years, conventional wisdom was, oh, if siblings fight, you should just let them duke it out and solve it because that's how they'll learn how to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I no. had some, you know, duke it out kind of things yeah. that didn't really go well. <laughs> well, and also I have like three boys and that's not a good, that's not good you can't advice. afford it if they duke it out. <laughs> no, no thanks. You know, so I always say to parents, don't walk away and let them duke it out. You know, be a sports commentator. Get in there and, and, and comment on what's happening and comment on the emotions that are bubbling up. You know, if you're seeing anger, say it. If you're seeing frustration, say it. If you're seeing sadness, point that out, because that's how we learn to read other people is by, you know, really being exposed to it over and over again. So it starts at home. You know, we talk about empathy. We think about how, how other people are feeling. Community service is always a great way to build empathy, because when we expose ourselves to other people and other struggles, we learn. And when we learn, we do better. So, you know, those are good things to do as a family. Um, and then just really, instead of, I get it because I have a daughter and a son. And so I know yeah. that when my daughter comes home and someone hasn't been kind, I want to be protective, you know, and I want to say something snarky. I and, do you know, too. I it's say, so hard not to say, yeah. You know? Well, she <laughs> wishes she were like, you know, I know it's just <laughs> exactly. not kind. Yeah. But, you know, I, I have to take a breath. I have to give, and sometimes I'll say, you know what? I'm going to think about this for five minutes. Let me take a couple breaths. I'm going to think about this for five minutes. Let's take a walk and then we'll figure it out, you know, yeah. and then I have to really, it's on me to zoom her out and say, okay, this person said this, but what was happening in the moment? Let's take a bigger look at the whole scenario. Do and you let's come from that angle? Yeah. Do you think that this is an emotional intelligence issue? I think to some degree it is. I mean, I think we just, it's a social skills issue. Oh, okay. We really have gotten away from prioritizing social emotional learning. And you're hearing, you're going to start hearing SEL as sort of a buzzword, you know, among education right now, because the powers that be are realizing that when they took all that away, it backfired. Yeah. So now we have to figure out ways to put it back into the <laughs> curriculum, which Play is catch hard up. <laughs> given yeah. all the changes that were made. Um, so it's starting to come back in bits and pieces in schools, but that's the big missing piece. Years ago, teachers had the time yeah. and the freedom to work on social emotional learning. Teachers don't have that time no. and we don't have that freedom anymore. And we always want to blame the teachers. If they no, were not their hands are tied. No, I've been a public yeah. school teacher. Yeah. They, they don't have the options anymore. Um, help me with this situation. I, uh, and, and I think that there are, I, I think that this is kind of in a universal uh, feeling as a, as a parent, there's a, a, maybe a mean girl issue you go to, you kind of explain, well, maybe they'll be thinking this, let, let's address it head on. Right. And maybe if the kids especially are younger, you might uh, to talk with the parent as well and say, Hey, listen, so-and-so said this or excluded this. Let's let the kids work it out. And, and this has happened to me a couple of times where the parent will say, Oh, it's fine. She didn't mean that let's just move on and and don't want to address it and 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 clearly have n don't really care um that 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 behavior is happening because socially their child is doing quite well how do you handle a situation like that well you know everybody wants to know what you do if someone has a mean girl being mean to their daughter but absolutely zero percent of the people come to me and say what do i do if my daughter is the mean girl <laughs> so right should we be asking ourselves that question though 
we should be asking ourselves that question because girls and boys, but girls can be unintentionally unkind because they get caught up in things. We, I see a lot of social engineering right now across the country. I speak all over the country, and I'm telling you, everywhere I go, somebody tells me the story of the group of fifth-grade girls with the ponytails and the black leggings and the white shirts and the Stan Smiths, or, you know, in California, they're wearing Vance, or, you know, in mm-hmm. Massachusetts, they're wearing Converse. It's everywhere we go, parents are engineering these groups. Yeah. And when parents engineer groups, somebody is going to be left out and excluded because they can't afford the Stan Smiths or they don't have enough black leggings or they didn't remember that it switched from ponytails. Or they don't care and it's just not on their radar. Yeah. Yeah. So we, the parents have to be very careful and take a good hard look in the mirror and say, why am I doing this? Why is it important to me that my daughter have this group? Because that's the only way to break it down is if we all look ourselves in the mirror and say, what am I even doing and why am I doing this? Because the truth is, these groups of girls, they graduate high school, they go off to college, they cannot cope. They don't know how to make friends because their parents did it for them. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to be kind because they didn't have to be. They don't know how to be empathic because they didn't have to be. So they fail socially when they get to college. That's what we're starting to see. So this is a bigger issue than just a few girls on the playground. But we really, you know, if another parent comes to you and says, hey, you know, so-and-so really wasn't nice and they kind of blow it off, what I would do is I would say, you know, I know it seems like everything's fine right now. I just want to talk it through. Is there anything that she said about, I mean, tell me, did did anything come back about my daughter? Because I'd love to talk it through with her just so we can, you know, avoid that error in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, kids make mistakes. Of course. Um, One of the problems, you know, one of the problems is parents get defensive and and everybody does. Nobody wants to hear that kind of feedback. So, you know, you have to also prepare for that if you're going to come to another parent and say, hey, this is happening, the first response is probably not going to be the one you wanted, and it may take a couple of tries mm-hmm. before you you know, move on from it. We have about less than a minute uh, left to be with you. You've written the book, No More Mean Girls. Who is this book for? This book is for any girls between the ages of you know preschool and 13 who need a little help. It's not just about relational aggression. It's also about building self-confidence and building coping skills, which is really important. And, you know, just figuring out who they are and and how they're going to thrive in this world. The author is Katie Hurley. The book is No More Mean Girls, and you can find it online or in likely your local bookstore. Thank you for being with us, Katie. Have you downloaded the BYU Radio app yet? If not, it's free, available in whatever application store you use. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show.